Hello and welcome to the Tefauti podcast series. For the next Tefauti pod uh, in this series, I'm delighted to be joined by David Abura, who is a, a fellow Kenyan, uh, a founder, uh, the founding director, sorry, of Cordio East Africa, a knowledge organization supporting sustainability of coral reef and marine systems in the Western Indian Ocean. Cordio takes research to management and policy, builds capacity and works with stakeholders, managers and policymakers. David's primary research is on coral reef resilience, in particular to climate change and the biogeography of the Indian Ocean. David has a PhD from the University of Miami in 1995 on coral bleaching and life history strategies and always had the intent to come back and work in research and conservation on the Kenyan coast. Welcome, David. It's uh, really great to have you join us here on the Tafalta Pod. Thanks, Krista. It's great to be with you. Um, so I guess, you know, for a lot of our listeners, it's sort of getting a bit of background on you and, and also obviously the organization that you've set up as Cordio. So through your research, um, what have you found uh, on the Kenyan coast and, and, and what kind of intriguing elements has there kind of become available to us to sort of get some knowledge on, on, on what's going on with our oceans here on the Kenyan coast? Uh, well, so I've been working here on the Kenya coast for, I guess, 25 or almost 30 years now. Um, and my research has evolved from what I did for my PhD, which was looking at sediment resistance in corals because of uh, river flows, dumping a lot of sediment in the reefs in Kenya in Malindi, basically. Um, and then evolving to looking at stress resistance because of uh, climate change and global warming and temperature stress. And so... And so the stresses are just increasing. And so what we're finding is that as we, you know, a lot of us in coral reef science, we start with a specific or a fairly narrow view, perhaps. And then it all sort of blends together, looking at all these big, uh, big threats that are just multiplying and acting together um, and building up and affecting reefs. So that's warming is particularly bad. Uh, sedimentation and pollution is a problem in certain locations. And then overfishing uh, by reef fisheries is, is a really major issue. So we're trying to look at how reefs uh, can survive all of this uh, and regenerate and recover. And yeah. there's a lot of chances for them to do that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and as you say, sort of the fishing element, and we'll no doubt go into more detail uh, around that in due course. Um, you studied uh, a lot around um, you know the coral bleaching element and... I also uh, indirectly sort of studied that within my master's and the Great Barrier Reef is very well known uh, for its coral bleaching um, and our, our coast of Kenya and, and some of the other African countries isn't so well known. Um, do we suffer from coral bleaching, uh, I guess is kind of the question and kind of what scale is that and, and how deeply and gravely does that then affect our oceans? Oh, well, it, yeah, so coral bleaching affects all reefs around the world right now. I mean, the thing is that bleaching itself um, is a stress response to corals. So, you know, corals are very delicate balance between the polyp uh, and the microscopic algae living within the tissue that trap energy from sunlight and pass it to the coral. So when the temperature is a bit high or if they're stressed by pollution or sediments, um, the symbiosis... That was a palm tree coming down in the garden, but that's all right. Was it? <laughs> Our listeners will love that. <laughs> <laughs> Work up the dog too. <laughs> 
So that's one of the natural hazards in this area. <laughs> on the yes, absolutely. But uh, yeah, so so corals are stressed by all sorts of things, and and they'll bleach in response to to many different threats. What's happening now with global warming is that you have this huge, widespread threat. You get this massive pool of warm water moving around the oceans because the oceans are warming. And if that happens during the summer months, then corals are really close to their upper temperature tolerance limit. And this hot water stresses them. And so you'll get coral reefs, corals on reefs bleaching over hundreds of kilometers, even thousands of kilometers of coastline. So the Great Barrier Reef was hit really badly three years in a row in 2015, 16 and 17. We were hit in 1998. So the first major global coral bleaching event happens so 23 years ago now. And East African reefs are amongst the worst hits by that event. Of course, it doesn't make the global news as much, but it's a very well-known phenomenon now. And as time has progressed since 1998, coral reef scientists and conservationists are really realizing that global warming is the, is the biggest threat emerging, affecting everywhere, even the Great Barrier Reef, where they thought it would be fairly immune to such, a, such an effect. So, you know, it's the, the thing is that as background temperatures rise and then you also get these uh, fluctuations over several years, like the El Niños, which everybody knows about now, these are really sort of uh, extra hot events that happen in many parts of the world. And so these, these peaks of heat, and those are my Hedada Ibis passing by. <laughs> Very <laughs> authentic these, noise. I love it. Yeah. That's the idea. <laughs> All my sound effects coming through. Yes. <laughs> so these these peak heat events are really becoming much more frequent as background temperatures are rising, and the El Nino system is getting more revved up with, with the ocean heating, and so it's progressively making conditions worse and worse for. All ecosystems, basically, but coral reefs are amongst the most sensitive, and we're seeing the impact in coral reefs before we're seeing impacts in, in other systems as well. Which is kind of scary, really, isn't it? Sort of the, the holistic issue that comes from the bleaching. It's uh, a very scary. Only thing. now we're realizing, yeah. aren't we? No, you're right. I mean, one of the, of course, working in coral reefs, we think about what can we do? Can we stop this? Uh, degree of warming in time to save coral reefs um, and it's not certain that we can do that but even so if um, it's a it's a lesson for what will happen in other systems as well uh, if we allow warming to to get that much worse so if, if we lose coral reefs you know mangroves will then be affected uh, agricultural ecosystems where you have lots of people depending on rain-fed agriculture and, and water will also be affected the, the large delta systems in the world, uh, which which support hundreds of millions of people, some of them. So yeah. coral reefs are really a, a signature lesson for what we need to avoid, not just for coral reefs, but for other systems uh, globally as well. And that's the warning, isn't it? I think kind of it's nature's warning in some way, sort of saying, listen, you guys are really messing up with what's going on here. And this is how the effects, and as you rightfully said, it's right at the start, you know they are sensitive, uh, and so the sensitive areas are are kind of giving us a little bit of a a warning. Uh, I think. Yes, that's right. Coral reefs are really the canary in the coal mine for for global warming, and if we if we don't learn these lessons quickly, we will will be affected by so many other things. I mean, all the 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 summer fires in California and um, Australia, so the the Mediterranean ecosystems that are quite dry and have very you know burnable vegetation. 
Um, mm. That's just the, the the tip of the iceberg for what things will be like if we if we let things go much further. Uh, so and, and for Corries, you know, with the um, the IPCC, so this is the the, the global uh, expert body on on climate change, has with their projections or the best case scenarios that they put out are that we need to we can limit warming to one and a half or two degrees Celsius. And we're already gone through about one degree. So if we can limit warming to one and a half, we'll still sort of lose, we we figure 70 to 90% of coral reefs around the world. And that means that, you know, we won't have these big coral reef uh, construction systems that we're used to. There will still be corals there and there will build the more temperature tolerant corals will be there. Um, some corals will adapt and will survive uh, and be able to, to grow in those conditions, but the whole sort of ecosystem won't be able to build itself in quite the same way around the, that limited number of corals that can survive. So it'll affect mm. a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. And that's the knock-on, isn't it? And and also sort of carry on, I guess, down that sort of trajectory when we go sort of more into the fisheries element um, in December. I'm not sure whether our listeners are aware, but in December 2018, the fishing rights of Somalia were actually sold um, to the Chinese. And this would have huge impacts. You know, we've spoken explicitly around coral, but of course, huge impacts on migratory species of fish that a lot of the communities have relied on uh, and around the world has relied on um, from the Indian Ocean. Sort of, what Have you guys seen the impact that that might have? I know it's only been sort of a, a relatively short period, but I know a lot of damage can be done even in a relatively short period um, around sort of ring netting or losing juvenile fish um, species. Yeah, so, so fisheries are, are very complex things. And, and I, I don't know that much about the, uh, um, the, the Somali fishing rights being bought by the Chinese um, at that time. Likely that is for offshore species. So the Somali system is an upwelling, so you have a lot of uh, smaller fish like uh, herring and things like that that's, that are very productive and tuna that migrate around the ocean. And they're likely fishing for those fish. And those fish don't come onto coral reefs, so there's a, those are different systems. Uh, we do have to watch out for those sorts of distant water fishing uh, issues. Um, but we have to keep our eye on the ball. It's not just the Chinese doing that. I mean, you've, you've got uh, there's the EU fisheries are particularly uh, rapacious as well. Some of the EU countries around the world. Uh, I mean, the whole nature of fisheries is very is very um, directed towards extracting as much as you can. So, yeah. so we really have to watch out for that. But on a coral reef, uh, what we're looking you mentioned the ring netting and seine netting and things like that. Those are much more localized uh, fishermen. Uh, we do have migrant fishing along the coast here in East Africa. So Tanzanians uh, coming up into Kenya and into, into Mozambique, uh, communities moving, migrating up and down the coasts. And the issue on the reefs is that they are very, the area is very small, particularly in East Africa, and the fish on them are very sight attached. So it's very easy to find them. And the fishermen know yeah. where to go and they can go back to the same spot again and again. So even with relatively low technology, you can uh, overfish coral reef fish in, in a very in a very short space of time. So uh, particularly with the ecology of the reefs changing because of warming and corals being yeah. stressed and it being harder for corals to come back, if you also add uh, overfishing on top of that, then you really uh, shift the system into something else, an alternative state, we call it. Uh, and so we're really watching for 
what happens as our reefs become more stressed, as corals die back with, with uh, bleaching events and are not recovering as well, uh, and the fish are being reduced because of fishing, are we, are we turning our systems more into algal reef systems uh, rather than coral reef systems? And that may be the case, um, and, we, and we need to look at how to manage those systems as best we can to ensure that the water is clean, that we can still fish some fish off them uh, in as sustainable way as possible. Uh, and that the, the environment can still support people, uh, fishermen, tourism, um, all those different things that we get from the reef system. Yeah, because there's the artisanal-like kind of guys, aren't they, and their little angelows that kind of head out every day in order to just do substance fishing. And sometimes I, I, I guess I kind of feel for them a little bit because they, yeah. they're kind of getting restricted more and more. And as you say, go back to the same spots, which are now getting outfished. And as our population grows, I mean, it's going to just be... You know, the little guy always seems to be the one that takes yes. the biggest feet. <laughs> the, the little really guy tough. always suffers the most. I mean, that's that's right. These guys, the, the fish that they catch, I mean, they, they retain some uh, in, in the home. So that's a protein source for the family. They sell some on and the, and the women in the fishing communities are often involved in, in fish selling and marketing. It gets their kids to school. It pays for, you know, when they have to go to the clinic and get medicines and so on. And so the incomes are really on a on a knife edge now with all of these systems changing. So of course they fish as much as they can because they need the money today or this week to pay for costs. Um, so I mean the, the thing about uh, a big issue we're talking about a lot now in, in climate change and in conservation of these issues of equity. You know how how do we make it so that we yeah keep these systems functioning so that people can can make a living out of these systems and we make sure that the you know the big corporations and the big businesses that can actually pay to um, for better practices on, on the whole and not just getting a free ride and and, and damaging systems uh, that other people depend on as well yeah no gosh I could talk to you for hours about uh, <laughs> about that and I guess value yeah. value to to everybody of, of course the fish because it always changes but just to sort of get in I guess uh, uh, Tafauti's kind of been known for, for, for wildlife conservation um, and somebody that has spent, I mean, I was sort of brought up in Watamu on, on the coast of Kenya. So, uh, you know, coral and marine world is, is, is a massive part of, of what I love. Um, but cons oceanic conservation sometimes is categorized a little bit differently. I think this is just maybe my interpretation, but uh, I would love to hear your your take on it. In essence, you guys have your charismatic species like we have in the wildlife world, you know, your rhinos and your elephants, and you guys have your, you know, your dolphins, turtles, sharks, whales. Um, but as we've just alluded to with the artisanal sort of fishing, um, there's a huge number of communities that rely on this, really, don't they, both to exist. And then on the flip side, we've sort of touched on it, but the global sort of trade in seafood uh, and, and all of that, you know, it's such a difficult thing. And, and how do you sort of, how do we help, I guess, in sort of the, the dependence on the ocean side? Uh, and sort of what, what is there that people sort of, albeit maybe based in sort of Western communities and suddenly are becoming aware of this, maybe through this or through other networks, like what can we do about it? Because it is, it is heading to, to a pretty dire, dire position. Yeah. So I think a big part of it is realizing that the ocean is not, too big to fail really or it's not just this huge open space that is so big it's it's not impacted by what we do on land because it is and i mean you find uh rubbish down to the deepest 
depths in the Marianas Trench in the Pacific, and we can see, you know, the, the whole ocean is warming as a result of what people do. Uh, and we've depleted fish stocks. I think tuna, the bluefin tuna, um, are at ten percent of the stocks they used to be before there was heavy fishing. And these are these are oceanic tuna. These are tuna that, you know, they they don't come into the shore. And these are boats going out and catching them. So we just need to finish, realize that the ocean is not limitless. We need to plan it and zone activities the way we do on land. So it's not, you know, fishermen love fishermen love fishing because they're free. They go out to the ocean and, you know, who should control me when I'm out there, when I'm a fisherman? You know, there's this real frontier sense of, uh, of being out there on your own. And it's a shame that the time for that has passed, but it has passed. We need to zone what you can do where. Um, so a lot of countries, uh, there's, a, there's a, a panel of presidents and heads of state called the high-level panel uh, on oceans. And those 14 heads of state have promised to set up 100% sustainable ocean plans. So 100% of the marine waters within the jurisdiction of that country need to be fully planned for what you can do. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just the reality on land already because of land ownership rights and all of that. You know, I mean, of course, there's big wilderness areas, but they are zoned as that. It's not that nobody's looking out for them. Uh, every, every square inch of land basically has some sort of jurisdiction over it. And the same has to be true of the sea. With so many people now and the reach of our economy is just so vast that, that we have to do that as well for the sea. Um, and you started this, you know, asking you know, t- tourism on the ocean. Um, I Okay, let me take a step back. So I, as a Kenyan, I went into ocean science or coral reefs, partly because I, I, was, I grew up, you know, going on safari and, and, and loving wildlife and all of that. Uh, but I realized as a scientist that there was already so many people working uh, in terrestrial sectors and in savannas mm. and, uh, and wildlife. But there was very few people working on the sea. And so it was wide open. Um, and yet, as we learn more about the ocean, we see how much human society is fully dependent on it, has been integrated with the ocean for hundreds and thousands of years, but we just haven't thought of it in quite the same way. So we think about the oceans, we think what's the biggest ocean sectors, and we think fishing or or transport and shipping. But actually, marine tourism is a much bigger sector in dollar terms than, than fisheries are. So people going to, you know, coming to the Kenya coast and staying in a beach hotel or people going fishing and going diving is much bigger sectors than, than fishing is. And, and many of them come for the sharks and the dolphins uh, to come and look at our people. Try and We try and have a big, a big five for the ocean. We don't quite have the same consensus as, as we have for on land. So it's a huge industry and there's immense value in an individual shark maybe worth $200,000 because of all the tourists that come and see it and go diving. Yeah. Whereas if you catch it and put it on a plate, it may be worth $20 or $100. So we really need to understand um, quite how much we depend on, depend on the ocean and its limits and then orient or reorganize our systems around that and their sustainability. Yeah, I guess, sort of, I guess we've sort of developed as a human society this expectation, like you rightfully pointed out, and I never thought about it that way, that the ocean because of its vast nature, it's always going to be fine. Mm, uh, yeah. And then it's only when, I guess, to make it relatable to sort of the European or the Americas, where you sort of see these 
awful pictures. I mean, one that sticks out to me is that the seahorse gripping hold of that cotton. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you know, those sort of images or the turtle that's been squeezed by the plastic or whatever it may be is sort of, I guess, starting to make people realize the knock on effects of some of our actions. Um, but I just worry that we might be a little too late, but it's better late than never, I guess, is kind it's of better the, late than I, never, certainly. Yeah. And so we, you know, in science, we talk about we've moved into the, the, the age of humanity or the Anthropocene. So if, if you're a geologist looking at, uh, looking at the planet or in a million years time, we'll be able to see this particular period in time when humanity, humanity's impact has a geological record. Um, and that's, that's how big our impact is. And what that means is that, yes, it's uh, for some things, it's too late, for sure. Uh, you know, nature will never go back to what it was in terms of, uh, you know, this wildlife corridors that where animals could move freely because now there's just tens of millions of people needing to, to have farmland and grow food and things like that. But we can still make it as, as good a planet as, as we possibly can. Um, so nature is very, is very robust and resilient and will you know, evolve and change around us if we give it the right conditions uh, to be able to do that. So for coral reefs, what we're really projecting now is that given the amount of warming that, that we know is going to happen, even if we do everything right now, there's still, you know, several decades of warming locked in because of the time lags involved. So we will lose more coral reefs in the next 30 to 40 years. But if we do everything right, conditions will stabilize. And then at that point, corals will be able to make a bit of a comeback. And we need to have developed the tools to restore coral reefs at scale to, to, to enable them to come back to not the glory that used to be 50 years ago, but they can still be a glorious system and they could, the water can still be very clean. We can still eat the fish, still enjoy the waters that provide the coastal protection and so on. So, you know, what's the, the best corridor into the future that we can, that we can uh, deliver for for you know the next generation of people and for the planet and for nature as a whole. Yeah, I, I guess so. It sort of seems like a mountain to climb, but we've got to take the first few steps, haven't we? As, yeah, as so human we've nature. Set ourselves, yeah, we've already picked our path, so we <laughs> we have to keep walking that and, and pick the better directions now, not the worst direction. And the, and the current climate is 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 given a lot of people a lot of thinking time. It and is. hopefully we'll start adapting to starting to realize that the damage we are causing longer term has huge implications for our, our own race to continue, uh, you know, will affect will affect the future. And I guess sort of along that that path, really, David, uh, a lot of people say to me regularly, you know, how do we help? <laughs> what do we do when it's not finance, just purely financially? And, I, and I've thrown this at a lot of people on podcast series, you know, but specifically with Oceanics, I find it quite interesting. You know, what can people do? Um, because there's a lot of willingness, not always financial willingness, but a lot of willingness to sort of understand more. I think as a human race, we've become a lot more inquisitive, a lot more wanting to uh, get authenticity and accountability and all of those things. Um, and I think that's a really good first step for our yeah. society to be moving in that direction. But how do we channel it to, to being effective? Yeah, it is. And I think it is very hard to understand, you know, what can each individual do because, you know, we need all of these individual actions to add up to, to a whole, to, to one big whole. But to have that consistency, I think everybody really needs to do their part and understand that it's important to do that. So 
of course, if you if you live by a coral reef, if you if you go and stay by a, a coral reef um, as a tourist, you can make direct choices about what you spend your money on and what you support. And you know, is the seafood that you're eating from a sustainable source? Is the hotel or is your own house? You know, how 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 well do they deal with the rubbish uh, and and the pollution that prevents it from getting into the sea? Uh, supporting community and small scale projects around uh, that are sustainability oriented or to to make supply chains more local rather than shipping things from far away. So a lot of things like that, if it's direct, but I think even uh, globally, I mean, climate change shows us that the, the impact of, you know, an action, uh, you know, in in China affects somebody in, in Palau or impacts somebody in the US affects somebody else in, in South America as well because of the carbon dioxide or, or the or, or the positive actions as well. So I think it's we the the message from coral reefs is that we have to reduce carbon emissions. There's no question about that. We absolutely have to do that. Because if we don't everything else is it's like um, pushing trying to walk upstream or to swim upstream against against the current. So, and that means everybody reducing their carbon footprints, whether it's in cars or energy and home heating. Um, and because it, it does add up. Uh, so businesses need to do that. Cities need to do that. Uh, but then it's also about uh, wastes, what, what one does with, with waste from the home. Do you sort it and recycle it or just sort of throw it away in a, in a messy lump that, that gets thrown somewhere else? So everybody has to reduce their footprints every every way they can, uh, and significantly to to make that difference. And that's and that's so doable, isn't it? And that's so doable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of a great message because a lot of people just sort of assume unless they're a millionaire they can't help, but you so can. It's those little tiny changes that you commit to, and it's not committing short term, is it? It's sort of a long term commitment to sorting out your sort of recycling elements and, and being diligent uh, with it and taking it places. It's all effort, isn't it? It's That's all right. effort. It's effort. It's a real change in mindset. And I think if you change the mindset, like COVID has shown us that, if we decide for whatever reason that, that we can't travel around the world this year, we actually stop mm -hmm. doing it, you know. And, and yeah. of course, some things are harmed by that, but it's possible. So we talk a lot about transformation. If you transform mindsets, then it's easy to make decisions along that new direction because that's that's what you want to do. That's what we feel is valuable. We want to spend our effort and time and resources doing that. And so I think that's that's really what everybody can do to really transform and change their mindsets and move in more sustainable directions. No, super interesting and, and lovely that, you know, as you say, everybody, everybody can make a little change. Um, and uh, super interesting to sort of just hear a little bit more about the detail and the the coral reefs and sort of the knock-on effects um, that we're having from around the world that sort of see the direct effects sort of on the ground. Um, so thank you, David. Thank you so much for uh, a no, great insight into, into your world and uh, really, really, really appreciate it on behalf of yourself. Yeah, no, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. I'm Krista Cullen. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to know more about Tafauti and our projects, please do visit us on tafauti.org. T-O-F-A-U-T-I. T -O -F -A -U -T -I.